Our reading tonight is from Luke chapter 16, verse 19 to 31, which is on page 1050 of the Church Bibles. That's Luke chapter 16, verse 19 to 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, are a, great, um, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Evening, everybody. Uh, please keep that passage open in front of you uh, as we look at it together. Um, but let me start by asking you a question. Uh, the question is, do you consider yourself to be a good listener? Maybe it's a slightly sneaky question to ask at the start of a, a sermon, but I don't think I'm as good a listener as I used to be. Uh, coming across someone who is a really excellent listener is a rare and precious thing these days. Now, there's lots of reasons, I think, why that could be, uh, not least that our attention spans are probably shot to pieces these days with all the digital media that we consume. But there could be other reasons as well why we struggle to listen well to people. It could be because we're busy trying to think of what we're going to say next. Maybe we're a bit shy, a bit nervous, or maybe because we think what we're going to say is actually more important than what the other person is saying. It might be because we already think we know what the other person is going to say, so we switch off and we'll just join the dots a bit later on. It might be because we don't actually value the other person or what they're saying very highly. So we're not that interested in what they have to say to us. Of course, that causes all sorts of problems, doesn't it, when we don't listen well to one another. But how much more so when we don't listen well to God? Now, in one sense, it's easy, isn't it, to listen to God uh, because we have his words here in the Bible. We can just open it and read it like Hannah has just done for us. We can take our time to do so. We can dwell upon it, even try and remember verses and key lessons from it. But of course, the sort of listening that God is after is not just hearing, 
It's actually taking on board and putting into practice what we hear. And that sort of listening is much harder, isn't it? But look, that is what our passage tonight is pushing uh, upon us. We're in this summer series in Luke, Lessons for Life. Uh, we're, we're jumping around a little bit, uh, and tonight we come to this, this passage. It's a passage that packs a real punch. You probably picked that up already. So I'm afraid if you were hoping for a, a light, comfortable talk that you could snooze through, I'm afraid this isn't it. The story that Jesus is telling, he's especially addressing the Pharisees at the moment. That's who he's in conversation with. But, but nonetheless, he has serious things for us all to hear but a message that also has great hope in it as well. Now, this little story or, or parable, uh, it's unique amongst all of Jesus' stories in, in a couple of ways, uh, and one of which is that it's the only one, certainly in Luke's gospel, that has a setting off the earth. Uh, much of the conversation takes place beyond the grave. Uh, but you'll have spotted, though, that the story does start on earth. So Jesus starts uh, in verse 19 by introducing us to two characters. We have a rich man and a beggar, two people that would have been very familiar sorts of people to Jesus' hearers, two people that we can probably imagine fairly well in our city as well. And the first scene that Jesus describes to us is, is their situation in life. So the rich man, you'll have seen, he, he lives a life of abundant indulgence. He has the best of everything. He, he wore the most expensive clothes, that, that purple that he was wearing. It was a rare color to have in those days. It was a sign of royalty. He even has the best underwear, uh, the Armani boxes of his day. Uh, I think that's that reference to fine linen, the reference to the sort of long undergarment that he would have worn underneath his outer clothes. Even that was made of the best cloth that money could buy. And he indulged in the finest of foods. Uh, the end of verse 19, if we were to read the ESV version, it would translate it as this. He feasted sumptuously every day. This was a life of haute cuisine with plenty to spare. And he lived in an opulent house. I think that's implied with the fact that he had a gate. Now, we're not talking about your, your common garden gate that lots of us probably have these days. But imagine more like a security entrance at the edge of your estate. If you were to have gone on a Hollywood-style celebrity house tour in the first century, uh, you would have paused outside his house and, and ogled it. Uh, the rich man lived a life of luxury. Not so the beggar. Now the contrast that Jesus draws between the rich man and the beggar could not be starker, could it? Rather than being covered with beautiful robes, well, he was covered with painful sores. Sores that even wild dogs come to lick, and therefore making him unclean, socially cast out. And rather than being able to sit down each day to a lavish banquet, well, he simply longed to eat even the scraps that fell from the rich man's table. And rather than enjoying the comfort of a palatial home, he was instead laid outside his gate, begging for anything he could get. Now, his was a life of absolute poverty. And yet, this beggar does have one thing going for him, which the rich man doesn't. Something, in fact, which is totally unique 
for all of Jesus' parables and stories, and that is a name. A name. Lazarus. Now, Lazarus was a, it was a very common name at the time. So in a sense, Jesus is, is drawing our attention to his ordinariness. But you'll know, of course, that in the Bible, names are significant. So it's important to know that the name Lazarus means God has helped. God has helped. So of these two men whose positions in life couldn't be more different, it is Lazarus who is especially known and loved by God. And that becomes even clearer when we move on to the next scene, which is their situation in death. They say, don't they, that that death is the the great leveller. And in one sense, that's true. Uh, No matter what your situation in life, all of us in the end will die. We take nothing with us. But in another sense, death is not the great leveller. Because as we see here, people's destinations are not the same. In fact, the rich man and Lazarus' positions are quite reversed. So Lazarus, you'll see uh, in verses 22-23, he is carried by angels to his eternal home. It fits with the special divine attention being paid to him. And delivered, did you see, to Abraham's side. So Abraham, the, the ancestral father of, of God's people. So now Lazarus is in the company of the redeemed no longer lying in poverty at the gates of a rich man, now standing at the gates of paradise. And a bit later on, we we see that Lazarus is comforted, no more in pain from hunger and those sores which, which covered his body. Now Lazarus is now in heaven. That's Lazarus, but what of the rich man? Well, we'll see instead, he also has died, And Jesus simply says he was buried. Nothing special, no angelic escort. He is now in Hades, which was the Greek name for a place of suffering after death. And there he is, all on his own, no one to keep him company. And whereas Lazarus in comforted, the rich man is in torment. If Lazarus is in heaven, well, the rich man now is in hell. So two men whose situations in life were completely opposite to each other, but now in death their positions are quite reversed. So look, having, having moved these two characters on from life into death, in the remaining verses, Jesus wants us to listen in to this conversation that takes place between the rich man and Abraham. And as we go through, we're going to think about three things that I think Jesus wants us to hear this evening. And the first is this, judgment is real and irreversible. Judgment is real and irreversible. I wonder how you react when you hear the word hell. Maybe you react with skepticism, discomfort, fear even, sadness, confusion. Perhaps the word conjures up lots of images in your mind that are out there in our culture. It's also possible that you're not even sure that it exists in the first place. Uh, a recent poll that was done in the UK found that even only three quarters of Christians believe in hell. But actually, Jesus talks about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. And he does so out of love. He does so out of love to warn us of its reality before it's too late. 
And this is one of those passages where he tells us a lot about the reality of hell. Now, we can't say for absolute certainty how much of this story is reality and how much is imagery. But Jesus is clearly conveying something to us about the judgment that awaits us all beyond death. So let me read verse 24 uh, again. Just look down with me. Because uh, the, the rich man says this to, to Abraham. He says, Have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Now, whether the fire mentioned is, is that of physical flames to re- or, or imagery to represent something of the, the kind of emotional turmoil that he'll be facing now, the kind of regret and sorrow of where he's ended up, uh, we don't know. But, but clearly the suffering he's, he's feeling is intense. And actually, aside from exposing the pain that he's in, the, the question he asks is quite revealing in a couple of ways. Uh, it shows that he knows Lazarus's name doesn't it? So it kind of makes sense that he used to lie at his gate every day. He would have known his name, and I guess he would have heard his cries for food as well. But I think the implication is he chose not to hear him. And you see that the rich man's attitude in life to Lazarus has not changed in death. You see that he asks Abraham to send Lazarus to him, as you would a servant. He's the rich man he and Abraham, we're on the same level, but this guy, Lazarus, well, he's, he's a servant for us, right? So even though he knows Lazarus' name, he doesn't talk to him directly. And extraordinary, isn't it, that, that in life, the rich man wouldn't give Lazarus a crumb of food to eat, but now he wants Lazarus to go to him just for a drop of water on his tongue. So some things haven't changed for this rich man. But what has changed is that he now does know he needs help. So he he asks for pity from Abraham. But you see in Abraham's response that it is too late for him now. Just look at 25 and 26 again with me. Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from here, from there to us. Now, we'll come back to verse 25 in a minute. But did you hear how Abraham tells the rich man that there is no way Lazarus can get to him, nor can the rich man go and join him at Abraham's side? A great chasm is between the two of them. You see, once we have died, there are no second chances. There are no further opportunities to repent and be saved. I think it puts pace to the the idea of purgatory that you maybe see in the, the Roman Catholic Church, this idea of a place where people can go after death, where they can purge themselves of their sins and get to heaven. I think it says no, this passage says, no, there are two destinations for us all, heaven or hell. Uh, I didn't bring my copy with, it, with me, but uh, let me recommend the book The Great Divorce, if you haven't read it, by C.S. Lewis. I think he, he kind of takes this idea and, and runs with it in all sorts of extraordinary ways. But one of the things he says is this. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, 
and those to whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. Did you see what he's saying? That, that all of us, like this rich man, ultimately we have two choices, and the rich man has chosen to live for himself, and God is now honoring that choice into eternity. Now look, this is a sobering truth for us to hear, isn't it? It's a reality that, that Jesus tells us to wake us up now. Now whether we're here tonight still weighing up what we think about the Christian faith, or for others of us who have friends and family that we long to see come to Christ, they need to hear and believe now. Judgment is inevitable and it is irreversible. But that brings us on to the second thing that I think Jesus wants us to hear tonight. And that is how we live now matters. How we live now matters. Just come back to verse 25, which we skipped over. Remember Abraham says, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Now I think it's a tricky little verse. I think you could misunderstand what Abraham is saying in, in a couple of different ways. Uh, you could think that, that Abraham is saying uh, that those who are rich in this life will go to hell and those who are poor in this life will go to heaven. Um, uh, now, the Bible does say a lot about the dangers of money uh, to our spiritual health. Uh, and it does say a lot about God's particular heart for the poor. Uh, but the Bible is very clear that salvation is never about what material wealth we, we have or don't have. In fact, Abraham uh, was a man who is exceedingly wealthy in his own life, so that can't be what Jesus is saying. And nor, that, nor can it be saying that salvation is down to our works, that it, it, that it was the rich man's greed or failure to help Lazarus that has put him into hell. And again, that would be inconsistent with, with Scripture. This may be helpful to remember the context of this passage. Remember, Jesus is addressing the Pharisees, to whom he said this just a few verses earlier. He said to them, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. So do you, that, do you see that Jesus is addressing people's hearts? He's saying, where do your affections lie? Who or what do you love? Who or what are you serving? And the rich man's heart lay with his wealth. That was his great love and not God. So the fact that he was selfish and greedy with it, uncaring towards Lazarus, was a symptom of that more fundamental issue going on in his heart. But having said all that, uh, these verses do say something to us about the way we live now. Because, of course, if our hearts are aligned with God, then that will have implications, won't it, on the way that we, we treat others. And it will it'll certainly affect the way that we view money. Uh, Jesus is particularly addressing that danger here. So if we're conscious that, that all wealth we have or don't have is a gift from God something that is to be used for this life but doesn't count anything for the next one, well, then we'll hold, hold lightly to it now, won't we? We'll want to use our money generously, 
to show hospitality, to buy presents for people, give to, to charities. We'll, we'll want to use our money ethically as well. So we'll want to ask questions like, do the clothes that we buy come from companies that treat their workers fairly? Is the food we buy coming from sustainable sources? Could we buy second-hand furniture rather than getting some new IKEA stuff? And we'll want to think especially about the poor, won't we? Are there ways that we can, can care for those in our city who are living in poverty? Now, whether that's buying food for someone we see on the streets, or, or donating clothes or household items to those who need them, or helping with things like street aid or the Cambridge Church's homeless project that runs in the winter. If we love God, then we'll listen to what he says about how to use our money and how to love people and his world well. So how we live our lives now matters. But here's the final thing to hear from tonight's passage, and it's this. The, the Bible has all we need to be saved the Bible has all we need to be saved. So having been rebuffed once by, by Abraham, the rich man has one more request to make in verse 27. He says, I beg you, Father, then, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so they will not also come to this place of torment. So the rich man finally accepts that it's too late for him. So he asks Abraham instead to send him to his brothers, uh, maybe they will escape the fate that has befallen him. But did you hear what Abraham said in response? They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Um, you don't have to go very far these days to, to come across someone who is deriding the Bible, do you? Uh, it could be a comedian uh, making jokes about whether the creation story holds up in the light of today's science in a funnier way than I've just done it. Uh, it could be an academic questioning the historical accuracy of some of the Old Testament scriptures. Or it could just be a colleague or a neighbor of yours skeptical about any, how any rational person could consider the teaching of the Bible relevant to life today. Or it could be a family member who's, who's angry at what they perceive in the Bible as being dangerous or, or backwards to our current moral climate. Easy to deride the words of the Bible. But to a Christian believer, and uh, as you remember was proclaimed at King Charles's coronation, the Bible remains the most valuable thing this world affords. And as Paul wrote to Timothy, it is able to wait, make people wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. And that is what Abraham says to the rich man here. He says the scriptures, the, the Moses, the prophets, the Old Testament, they're enough to be saved. You don't need to, we don't need to do a full sweep of the Old Testament tonight, you'll be glad to hear, to, to see what it says about salvation. Enough simply for us to think about what it says about Abraham himself. Uh, if you've been around in the mornings uh, church a few weeks ago, we, we heard when uh, God says this, Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. You see, the true children of Abraham, those that will be gathered to him as Lazarus was, and not those who share his genetic DNA, nor those who attempt to keep the Jewish law. They are those who follow in Abraham's footsteps by faith. You see, spiritually, we're all beggars like Lazarus in need of God's grace. 
And that is all laid out for anyone to hear in the words of the Bible. Now, it's so tempting in that kind of climate that we live to, to doubt the power of God's word, even as Christians. But we mustn't lose sight of the fundamental truth that we need to keep being confident to point people to the words of the Bible and trust God to do his work of, of opening deaf ears to hear the good news of salvation. And look, just as we close, here's a little sub-point to that last point. Because the Bible has all that we need to be saved, and Jesus is the final word. Uh, we get that from those last verses uh, of our passage tonight. Come back with me as the conversation concludes. Uh, the, the rich man rejects Abraham's affirmation of the scripture's worth. No, he says, that's not enough. My brothers are just like me. They, they know Moses and the prophets, but they don't listen to them. What they need is my old neighbor, Lazarus, to go to them and, and warn them. Some sort of visitation or supernatural um, appearance. Then they will repent. But of course, he's quite wrong, isn't he? As Abraham says to him. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now, there's a quite, little, quite nice little cross-scriptural aside, I think, about this passage, because you probably know the only other person in the Bible called Lazarus uh, was a good friend of Jesus, who, in John's Gospel, he does raise that Lazarus back to life, and the Pharisees still don't believe who Jesus is. Um, uh, but, of course... Uh, I think what Jesus is actually doing, uh, more than that with this final little reference, is he's pointing forward to himself. He's pointing forward to what will happen when he himself will rise from the grave. It's probably a little bit out of date to still be talking about uh, Richard Dawkins. I don't know how much he, influence he has these days. But anyway, um, I'll always remember a debate that he had, uh, I think that was 15 years ago now, with, with John Lennox, Christian scientist, they, they'd been debating for more than an hour uh, about science and religion and what was true and what was not. And Lennox concluded by, by speaking about the centrality of the resurrection of Jesus. And Dawkins said in response, so we come down to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's so petty. It's so trivial. It's so local. It's so earthbound. It's so unworthy of the universe. I don't know if you've come across that quote before uh, or heard similar things from others. When, when there are so many big ideas of life, the universe and everything, why would you let something that seems so tiny and unprovable from history dictate your life? But the reality that Abraham puts across in this story is that all those who are perishing will dismiss the death and resurrection of Jesus and they won't listen to the gospel message. Because when Jesus had returned from the grave, many people wouldn't believe it. They would try to suppress those who were spreading the news. And yet, to those who do hear that glorious message of the resurrection, it is the answer to all that our hearts have been longing for. To those who God has called Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, I came across how John Lennox responded to that Richard Dawkins quote this week. He, he wrote something a bit later on, uh, and he said this. Um, to say that the resurrection is petty, trivial, and earthbound is to portray a profound failure to grasp what the resurrection is 
and what it implies. Petty, trivial, and earthbound are exactly what the resurrection isn't if it happened. It is atheism, which is with its oblivion at death, that makes us earthbound, petty, and trivial. If Jesus rose from the dead, it demonstrates that he is very much not earthbound, but God the creator of the universe. Sorry, God the creator incarnate. That's for unworthy of the universe. The question should be, is the universe worthy of him? Isn't that a great response? So friends, we need to be confident. If, uh, if we are friends or a family, if we want to hear what it is to live lives rightly now and to have that certain hope for the future, then we need to be confident to listen to the words of the Bible and hear its glorious news of the resurrection of Christ right at the heart of it. That's what everyone needs to hear. And in God's kindness, those he will call like Lazarus, he will give them ears to hear that. Let's not be afraid to keep putting Christ crucified in front of our friends. So three things for us to hear tonight and to ponder in the week ahead. Judgment is real and irreversible. How we live our lives matters. And the Bible has all we need to be saved. And Jesus is the final word. I want to give you a moment just to to reflect and, and pray quietly. And then I'll close us in prayer. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you tell us what we need to hear. Lord, we confess that sometimes we struggle to hear and believe what you say. But we pray very much that tonight you would impress upon our hearts the reality of of judgment to come, the the importance of living for you today, and, uh, and to know that the Bible is all we need to be saved. Help us to hold fast to it and hold it boldly out to those we know. In your name we pray. Amen.